Would you open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. I remember growing up, my dad would say something to the effect every now and then of, well, Skip, how many times do I have to tell you this before you'll get the message? And, of course, the answer was always a lot of times, Dad, because, you know, I just didn't get the message all the time. In the New Testament, the word church appears 118 times. 115, it speaks of the church that Jesus said he would build. And three times speaking of just an assembly of some kind, a general assembly, a gathering. 118 times God has told us about his church. How important do you figure the church is if God has told us 118 times? It was Jesus who said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Lord Jesus beginning to build his church. In the next several weeks, at least the next few weeks, we're going to be camped in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at it very closely because this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible on what we do, on who we are, on being the church. It is a passage of primary reference. And so we want to look at this first church, the early church, quite uh, carefully. The church is born in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Probably the most exciting room in a hospital is the delivery room. There's a lot of joy in one of those places. It's fun but it's confusing, it's noisy, there's lots of activity going on. Well, on Pentecost, 3,000 new babes joined the church. Babes in Christ. It was like the maternity ward of the church. It was the time it was born. And understand that the first church, this early church, didn't have buildings, PA systems, policy manuals, uh, leaders like we have at this stage of the game. It was a very fluid and very disorganized place. And it was God's fault because he added those 3,000 souls to the church. I think if um, uh, you would have asked Peter theological questions at that point, though he knew his Bible, he wouldn't be able to articulate them like we would like if you were to say, well, Peter, tell me what your... Um, eschatology is like. Are you pre-millennial? Are you amillennial? Are you pre-tribulation in your eschatology? Tell me about your ecclesiology. He'd probably look at you and go, huh? What are you talking about? All I know is I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. I love him and I'm following him. He said he'd build his church and I'm a part of it. That's really about all they had at this great stage of church history. It was all about Jesus is doing something. We're a part of it. I remember back in the um, Jesus Movement days, uh, as we called them, years ago here in these parts, there was uh, an article in the local newspaper, and one of the Christian leaders in the community, I don't know which one, uh, was talking about all these kids coming to Christ in the Jesus Movement. And he was remarking disdainfully, saying, well, all they have is Jesus. Duh. What else do you need? 
but rallying what you do around the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that theology isn't important. I'm not saying that organization isn't important, but I'm saying when any of that eclipses the centrality of Jesus Christ, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. And to one of them he said, You're doing a lot of great things. You're very busy. You're very active. But i got something against you. You've left your first love. I heard about a woman who tried to join a church. Five times she tried, unsuccessfully. She was uh, a woman, they said, from the wrong side of the tracks. And the church she tried to join was sort of an upscale, fashionable, country club type of church. And uh, they really weren't interested in growth. They really weren't interested in having people like her in their church. They didn't want her sitting next to some of the wealthy members. And uh, so five times they denied her entrance and membership to this church. And the final time, one of the elders said, look, just go home and talk to God about it. Pray about it. Just trying to brush her off. So she left. And they didn't hear from her for months till finally that elder going downtown in an office building saw this dear woman scrubbing the floors. That was her job in a downtown office plex. And he recognized her and said, aren't you that woman that came and tried to join our church? She said, I'm the very one. And didn't I tell you to go and have a talk with God? She said, yes, she did. Well, did you have a talk with God? Yes, I did. She smiled and said, really? Well, what did God say? And she smiled back up at that elder and she said, Lord told me not to be discouraged at all that he's been trying to get in your church for 20 years with no more success than I've had. (laughs) You never want to be the kind of a church where Jesus is on the outside trying to get in. By the way, it happened. It happened. We often quote that famous passage in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I'll come in and sup with him. Trouble is, we quote that to unbelievers. You know who Jesus said that to? His church. It's a picture of Jesus standing outside of his church going, excuse me, time out. This is supposed to all be about me, and it's not. It's all about you. And he was saying, open the door and let me in. Well, we turn then to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look principally at verse 40, 41, and 42 this morning. And it is a, a landmark event and history is full of them, those, those moments where everything else afterwards hinges on that one moment. And this is it, the birth of the first church in the book of Acts. It's in its embryonic stage, its nascent form. It is growing, budding, burgeoning. And, and it becomes to us our pattern. It's our model. It is our grid, our template of what we ought to be looking at in terms of how do we do church. And that's important because a lot of people stop at some historical point and they don't go back far enough. They say, well, we're a Reformation church. We're a a Wesleyan church. We're a Moravian church. I say, keep going, buddy boy, all the way back to the very first model, the template that God gave. And so we want to do that. And we want to do it for a few weeks. So get used to these passages. You'll have memorized probably after the the next few weeks. Um, Let me just say as well that we battle two things 
Whenever we come to join a church or be a part of church, we battle at least two things. Number one, we battle our own preconceptions, our own ideas, our own traditional baggage of what church ought to be. Well, we've always done it that way, so because I'm used to that way, that's the way it should be done. We're always battling our own traditions, and traditions I've found are some of the hardest things to break in people's lives. Number two, we battle our own culture. We live in a consumer-oriented culture. It's all consumerism. It's egocentric. It's self-centered. It's all about me. And so people often approach church like they approach their own ego-centered culture, and they go church shopping to find all the right ingredients for me. Now, I understand that, and I think everybody does that to some degree, but the problem is the focus. The focus in that approach is anthropocentric, man-centered. It's all about me. What do they have to offer me? It makes me feel good. My kids like it. They have a knitting class for me, whatever it might be. Rather than I exist and we exist for the glory and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Um, I'll never forget the time. This was years ago, and it was at my former fellowship in Albuquerque. And a man walked up to me after the service, and he was sort of... um, um, short with me and a little bit arrogant. That's why I responded the way I did to him. He looked at me and he said, well, we're just sort of shopping around and we're here today to see what you have to offer. I said, oh, well, I felt like an ingredient. You know, I'm on a, uh, in a store. Like, look at the box. Okay. And I said, I appreciate that and we're sure glad you're here, but can I just ask you a question? What do you have to offer? What do you have to offer? I mean, you're going to be part, if you are, of the church. You're going to bring something to the table, some gift, some talent, some involvement. Well, this morning, we want to look at this first church, this early church. It is born, and there's three ingredients I want you to notice in these three verses. Three things that marked the first church. Number one, a bold proclamation of the gospel. Bold proclamation of the gospel. I'm going to take you back to verse 36, and we're sort of jumping in on the middle slash tail end of um, Peter's sermon. He's boldly preaching the gospel. He's in Jerusalem. He's surrounded by Jewish people who do not agree with his message. They uh, rejected, by and large, the Messiah. Uh, He's in the temple. It's the time of worship. In verse 36, therefore, Peter continues, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You could stop right there and spend a whole message on just that. How many times does the modern church preach that message, repent? Peter preached it. It was the first message, repent. For the promise, verse 39, is to you, your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved 
from this perverse generation. So there's Peter's message. It's direct, it's bold, it's packed full of scripture, and it's very convicting. They were cut to the heart. There was conviction of heart, and they responded to it through repentance. Before conversion, there must be conviction. If there is no conviction of sin, there is no conversion. And before there is conviction, there must be proclamation. There must be somebody there who has the guts enough and love of Christ enough to boldly proclaim the gospel. And that is the New Testament pattern. It never changes. It never changes. In Romans chapter 10, Paul said, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So we talk about great revival and great salvation. Where does it come from? Great salvation is always the result of great proclamation. Great proclamation. You could look at any of the past revivals. I challenge you to study them. Study any of the great movements of God and you will always find at center to that revival is the bold proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that should become the mark of any New Testament church. Say, well, we're a New Testament church. We ought to be about evangelizing. We ought to be about evangelizing. I love to quote Arthur W. Pink. He was the one who came up with that little axiom, a church that does not evangelize will eventually fossilize. And I've traveled around this world, and I've seen lots of churches on their way down, dying and dead, because they do everything but preach the gospel. Listen, evangelism was the norm for the early church, for the early Christians. And they all did it. Since you're in Acts chapter 2, just turn right a couple of uh, blocks and go to Acts chapter 4. Things were moving in Jerusalem. The word was getting out. And in Acts chapter 4, look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Go over one more block, Acts chapter 5. They had been persecuted between what you just read in Acts chapter 5. In fact, the law had been passed. They couldn't preach the gospel legally in Jerusalem. Look at what they did. Daily in the temple, verse 42, Acts chapter 5. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now go over to chapter 8. Since you're there, you're close, so it's only a few chapters. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 4. Persecution grew worse. People went past Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So it's safe to say that one of the marks of the early church was a bold proclamation of the gospel. Now, you might hear that and say, yeah, but Skip, that was just the early days. And, you know, they were all excited. Jesus rose from the dead. People were being healed. There were signs and wonders. Everybody's sort of on this bandwagon effect. And so they're all excited. They're pumped. And so they preach. Well, yes and no. It's really less exciting than you might think. Oh, it was exciting, but it was dangerous. 
Because back in Acts chapter 4, which we just read, they were threatened. They were brought before uh, the legal assembly of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and they pointed their fingers at those two apostles, Peter and John, and said, it is now illegal for you to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ in this city. Now, how did they react to that? Did they go, yeah, you're right. Everybody has a right to believe whatever they want. We don't want to impose our Western values on anybody else. Here's their response. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, that's the first thing they did. They took it to prayer. The place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. There it is again. Bold proclamation. And we could look at guys like Stephen. Talk about a bold proclamation. They brought him before that same council. And he opened his mouth. And for 50 verses, he gives a detailed account of their own Jewish history. All the way from the call of Abraham until the death of Jesus Christ. And then he applies it. Talk about a bold proclamation. Look at verse 51 of chapter 7. Or just listen if you didn't bring a Bible. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. How's that for a sermon? You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were, there it is again, cut to the heart. But they didn't say, what do we do? Look at it. It says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And you know what the result is? They killed him. Virtually the entire book of Acts is this pattern. Because you get to the next chapter, chapter 8, you have Philip going down to Samaria. He says he preached the word to them. The very next chapter you have Saul who gets saved On the way to Damascus, as soon as he's saved, he goes into Damascus and preaches the gospel. The very next chapter, you have Peter going down to the house of Cornelius. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel, leads him to Christ. And then the rest of the book to the 28th chapter is the story of Paul the Apostle. You couldn't shut him up. You could throw him in jail. You could beat him. He'd get out. He'd get up if he was almost dead. And he'd go into the next town and he'd preach the gospel. There was always a bold proclamation of the gospel. That's the book of Acts. So I always treasure in my mind that memory that I have of being in India, talking to two pastors who were discussing how big their churches were, when a veteran missionary came alongside and hear it and he said, Brothers, when are you going to stop living in the book of Numbers? And start living in the book of Acts. Listen, if you want to live in the book of Acts as a church, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. This is the book of Acts. I don't think there's any dispute among any group of Christians that the gospel is precious. If you were to take a poll of any Christian church, do you love the gospel? Virtually everyone in that crowd would say, I love the gospel, the simple old-time gospel. God sent His Son into the world to die for my sins. While we love it, I would say that fewer have a real desire to share it. 
You see, Gallup organization released some interesting statistics. They said 95% of all Christians have never once shared their faith with another person. And they were asked why, and they said, well, I tried it once. 20% said, I tried it, I failed. 43% said, I'm scared. 41% said, they asked tough questions. I don't know how to answer them. So it closes us down a bit. My first experience with an evangelist was a good one. My second wasn't so good. My first one was good. It was with watching a Billy Graham crusade on television. And when he turned toward the television cameras and said, if you want to know Christ, you know, and and I came and I, I prayed. It was wonderful. But the second experience that I had was in San Bernardino, California, where there was a tent that was set up on a dirt street corner and I tried to get into the tent. It had sawdust on the floor. I brought an unsafe friend, and they wouldn't let me in. I said, how come I couldn't get in? And the evangelist was there. He had his hair slicked back, three-piece suit, nice shoes. I thought he was out of place in a sawdust tent. But he said, you can't come in. You don't have shoes on. I said, come on. This is a tent. You have a dirt floor. My feet are perfectly appropriate for this place. So, oh, no, you need to dress right. So it was sort of a turnoff. And I've discovered since then that um, evangelism isn't professional. It's relational. You just know people. You hang with them. You work with them. You share with them. It's natural. But you share with them because you love them enough to keep them out of hell and you want to see them with you in heaven. Somebody once said the, the most selfish thing you could ever do is be content to go to heaven alone. And if you get past that, you'll be an evangelist. Well, um, do people know you're a Christian? Do people know you're a Christian? You say, well, listen, let me just tell you something. I believe in all that you're saying, but I like to live my witness. I commend you for that. We should all live our witness. But if you live a witness, but you don't tell people how you got to live so wonderfully, how are they going to know? Remember the Lady Clairol commercials? Only her hairdresser knows for sure. There are Lady Clairol Christians out there. Only God knows for sure because you haven't told anyone. Now, why is there this uh, hesitance, reticence to share the gospel? One of the reasons is a lot of that timidity is birthed in pulpits around this country. There are many preachers who are ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed to mention the blood of Christ. In fact, there are churches today pulling out of their hymnals any song that refers to the blood of Jesus Christ. You know why? It offends people, they say. I had a friend, still he's a friend. He was a worship leader of a church. And he said, Skip, they won't even let me have too many songs that mention Jesus Christ in the worship service, let alone the blood of Christ. Ashamed of the gospel. I have a little newspaper article. It's an advertisement of a church that was boasting in the fact that they embrace anyone and everyone, and we're just so wonderful. We'll take you just the way you are. You don't have to change anything about yourself, blah, blah, blah. And it said, if it's a barrier, we remove it. It sounds like a wonderful thing to say. Here's my question. Well, what if the gospel is a barrier? Will you remove it? In a lot of places, they would say yes. I agree with G.K. Chesterton who said, we do not want a church that will move with the world. 
We want a church that will move the world. Acts, this church, moved their world. And why? Because there was a bold proclamation of the gospel. Now look at verse 41. The bold proclamation is followed by a second mark of this early church, a glad reception. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You ever try to picture this scene? Can you imagine what Peter thought? I don't know exactly how he did it. I don't think he did it the way I do it, but I just sort of wonder if he said now as we keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed, are there anybody here in the temple courts that would like to receive Christ? Just raise your hand. And he looked up and there are 3,000 hands. Wow. (laughs) This is magnificent. Astronomical growth. But it says they gladly received or gladly received his word. You could translate that. They joyfully welcomed it. They consented or they gave it entrance. Okay. For a church to grow, it needs scattering hands, number one. That's evangelism. You take the seed of the gospel. You throw it everywhere you go, in the supermarket, uh, with your friends, at work, at home, in the neighborhood. You're scattering. So it needs scattering hands and it needs listening ears. For the church to go. Listening ears, they gladly received the message that was spoken by Peter. And here's why. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So there is a tremendous growth that takes place by someone just listening to the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. But here's the question. How are you hearing? Well, Skip, I'm hearing just fine. I don't have a hearing. No, that's not what I mean. How are you listening? Well, what do you mean, how am I listening? I don't understand. Well, Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Take heed or be very careful how you process what you're hearing. And this is why he said it. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Because to those who are open to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But to those who are not listening, even what they think they have will be taken away from them. No wonder you have people who have been in churches all their lives and they still say, I don't get it. I don't get it. Take heed, be very careful how you hear. You see, a person can listen in a couple of different ways. Actively. Listen or passively listen. It's possible to listen mechanically. Well, there's there's more ways than that. You can sort of listen like this. And afterwards, great sermon. Or you can sort of listen passively mechanically, put your brain in neutral, sort of like watching television. You're really not going to apply it or be changed by it. It's just, yeah, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'll give it a 6. Easy to dance to. Nice listening. We sort of grade it. That's passive listening, mechanically listening. One person wrote, Many regular church attendees consistently focus their minds on sporting events, business affairs, or matters of personal interest as soon as the sermon begins. Many so-called worshipers can tell you what dress the pastor's wife wore in the service but can't recall the text of the sermon or the application of the message to their lives. Or... Or you can listen actively. And what do I mean by that? It means you come with the attitude, I've got an appointment with God today. 
God's going to speak to me through His Word. And I want to listen to it. And I'm going to listen very carefully. I'm even going to take a few notes down. And I'm going to pray about them when I go home. I'm going to really listen because God wants to talk to me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away from them. I will tell you this. Anointed speakers need anointed hearers. Walt Whitman, one of the great poets of America, said to have great poets, you've got to have great audiences. And you can look through the Bible and find that they were there. Ezra had a great audience. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra gives a message that's at least four hours long. It's a long message. And it says in Nehemiah 8, He read from it in the open square, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Paul had it. He preached to the Thessalonians, and he wrote a letter to them later on, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, You received the word in much affliction, but with joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, I know your outward circumstances were tough when I gave you the message, but you took it into yourselves with great joy. There was this glad reception. Now look at verse 42. Here's the third element. There's a bold proclamation. There was a glad reception. And the third, a steadfast dedication. Let's just go back to verse 40 and read it all in one fell swoop. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they, that is the 3,000 new baby believers, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. This morning, I want to close with just two words of verse 42. It's the words, they continued steadfastly. There's two words in our English Bible. In Greek, there's one single word, proskartereo. I'm not asking you to remember that or write it down, or you won't have a quiz on proskartereo, but it's a single word that means to adhere or stick to something with great strength, to be earnest towards or to be constantly diligent. Here's the meaning. This new group of people had a passion to grow, a spiritual excitement. It's the same word that appears down in verse 46, but in a different form. Look at it, verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. See the word continuing? Same word, proskartereo. It's a, it's a tense of a word that includes an ongoing process of a firm dedication. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up. I'm here. I'm going to stick it out. There's another word that Jesus Christ gave that I think also sums it up. When I say it, you'll go, ah, it's the word abide. John 15. Whoever abides in me, the Greek word meno means to remain or maintain a constant living communion. Whoever abides, remains, or has that constant living communion. So here it is. Here's the first church. They're saved, they're listening, and they're dedicated to their church community. They were steadfast 
in the apostles' doctrine. They were steadfast in fellowship. They continued steadfast in the breaking of bread. They continued steadfast in their prayer life. Go back to something in your minds. Remember, these are 3,000 brand new believers. We wouldn't even consider them mature, right? They just got saved. But these saved new believers in Christ were dedicated. Now, there's the point that Luke wants to drive home. These brand new Christians stuck with it. They didn't walk forward, shed a tear, say a little prayer and say, okay, next and move away from it and forget about church. You see, folks, once again, we battle our culture. Our culture is transient. 20% of the population of America moves every year. So we often approach our church culture like we approach the American culture. And since Americans move all the time, then Christians can move all the time. I'll be in this church a while and that church a while. Just sort of shop and hop around. And I've got to tell you, those kind of folks are never happy with any church ever because it's all about them. Here's a group of people who were faithful. Preachers love to harp on faithfulness, don't we? One preacher did, and he said this to his congregation. All that I ask is that we apply the same standards of faithfulness to our church activities that we would in other areas of our life. That doesn't seem too much to ask, he continued. The church, after all, is concerned about faithfulness. Consider these examples. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? If the paper boy skipped Mondays and Thursdays, would they be missed? If you didn't show up at work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit a day now and then, would you excuse it and say, ah, well, it works most of the time? If your water heater greets you with cold water one or two mornings a week while you're in the shower, would it be faithful? If you miss a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, would the mortgage holder say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? If you attend worship meetings only often enough to show you're interested but not enough to get involved, are you faithful? This, then, is the early church. This, then, is our template. This is our pattern. This is Church Building 101. This group of people was the early church. And what was the early church? It was full of saved people. Saved people who loved and practiced evangelism wherever they went. A church full of saved people who listened carefully and received gladly. There was a glad receptivity to the truth, and they had an abiding commitment to fellowship with that group of people. This, then, is the church that Jesus loves to be a part of. He's not standing on the outside knocking, saying, Time out. Can I come in? This is the kind of church Jesus wants to build. Simply because it's Christ-centered. It's Christ-centered. And this church, from this day forward, must always be about Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't feel comfortable with this church. I hope Jesus does. Because it's his church. So is organization important? Yes. Is doctrine important? Yes. Is all the different groups that we have that spring out of any church fellowship important? Yes. Is it important that you get involved? It always is, but all to the glory of God. Always. 
and it must always be about him. A little boy went to Sunday school class. He first time in a new church. They just moved to this town. Mom was wondering how he would like his Sunday school class. And afterwards, the little boy came up to mom and he seemed to be smiling. And she said, oh, how was it? He said, oh, I was great. I loved it. Well, what'd you learn? He told all about the lesson he learned. And the mom said, what's your Sunday school teacher's name? The little boy looked up and said, I can't remember her name, but she must have been Jesus' grandmother because she couldn't talk about anybody else. Isn't that great? Couldn't talk about anybody else but Jesus. Let that mark us. Heavenly Father, you made the world. And you made people to inhabit it. And you made us to be a part of it. The world that you made is a world that, well, doesn't want to have much to do with you. For your word tells us Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. And so you had a plan to rescue this dark world, this perverse generation, as Peter called it. And your plan includes building your church to be active in evangelism, active in listening to your word and being nourished therein, and then actively, continually, in a dedicated fashion, be committed to the fellowship of the Christian community. And to think, all these that we read about were 3,000 brand new believers. They were so excited. I pray, Lord, that you'd renew our excitement about Jesus in his name.